Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and as always, by my good friend, my business partner, uh, the good Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. How are you on this fine, whatever day it might be in the week? Yeah. Yeah, I'm quite hot. Mm. Uh, it's a little muggy. I've got a thunderstorm rolling overhead, which is pretty much how every afternoon goes in Virginia in July. Well, l- listeners can listen to all that and choose your own double entendre as you wish. All right. Yeah. Was I saying double entendre things? I was going there. All right. I was just, when, just when living you got my to, best life. When you got to thunderstorm, I thought... Thunder. So, <laughs> so you and I, Jason, are getting together this time. Normally, we're drinking tea um, or water or a bit of the both. Uh, but today, we have some Glen Murray in our glass. We do. It seems apropos. Um, and this has been enjoyable because I have had people reaching out to me. In our last episode mm-hmm. of One Nation Under Whiskey, which was subtitled One Nation Under Rum, <laughs> I, 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 I poked a little, as I'm prone to do. I, you and I have a very brotherly relationship, and we, we enjoy poking the other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I keep forgetting you're not supposed to breathe in the whiskey. You're supposed to swallow it. And when you said that, I started to gasp. And then the whiskey went down. I'm like, whoa. Oh, that's good whiskey. <laughs> it's always worse when you do something like that in a tasting and you look like a rank amateur at the front of the room when you accidentally inhale. And you're like, no, I drink a strength every day of the week. <laughs> so... So yes, yeah, so I was I was pressing your buttons uh, in our One Nation Under Rum episode that mm-hmm. that you hadn't sent me any Black Tot, and and here's what was wonderful about that: our very good friends at Black Tot reached out and they have sent me a <laughs> bottle of Black Tot since my own <sighs> dear friend and business partner couldn't send me a sample. So so that was very kind, and so. The fact that we're doing the Glen Murray episode, I get a little bit of payback today, which is, <laughs> and I posted this on Instagram, I ordered some of the Glen Murray Madeira cask project from mm-hmm. the, the Curiosity line that, that they've been working on. Yeah. And I ordered it shortly after we recorded our interview with Kirsty McCallum. Mm-hmm. And and I, I had a sample to send you for us recording this episode. And as I pointed out to you when we first made contact uh, over FaceTime, it's sitting on my couch. Mm-hmm. And so I, for the purposes of recording this episode, am thoroughly enjoying the Madeira <laughs> cask, curious Glen Murray, and you, sir, are watching me do so. But I don't feel too bad because when it came to the black tot, it's not like I had something else to fall back on. Now for you not having any of the Madeira cask, which I did say on Instagram, is an instant classic. Really? Oh, you see, I didn't I read did. that yet. Okay. That classic, that's the type of support I've come to expect. Instant classic. You, 
you have you have multiple Glen Murrays you could pull from, and so which which Glen Murray have you poured yourself? You know, I do have multiple Glen Murrays to pull from, and before I tell you, and and I'm not saying this just because we have Kirsty McCallum on this episode, but. You look like tears are running down your face right now. Is, is this an emotional moment or no. are you still dying <laughs> still, from inhaling? Uh, I'm still dying from inhaling that whiskey before. Uh, I really meant to drink it and inhale it. Anyway. So so share with me and, and our listeners, which whiskey from Glen Murray did you inhale, Joshua? Well, before I tell you that, I've got to tell you, I, I was I was looking at my collection here and I would mm-hmm. say... There's three distilleries that I have the most whiskeys from. Mm-hmm. And I say Kilhoman aside because Kilhoman is also work whiskey. Yes, there's a lot of personal Kilhoman, but I call that work whiskey too. It is Imperial, Springbank, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Glen Murray. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. That's interesting. <clears throat> when you say Springbank, is that writ large? Is there also long roll? It's written large, yeah. That that takes into consideration all three distillate styles. And I know I shouldn't, but I I do in the back of my mind lump Kilcarran in with that, even though I know I Agreed. probably shouldn't. Yep. No, I, I do the same thing. It's actually interesting. I have no hazel burn. And if I have any hazel burn, it would be one offering from the warehouse at Cadenheads. That's even if I have one. Do you have much hazel burn on your shelves? Quite a lot. I love hazel. All right. Yep. Okay. Yep. Triple distilled Springbank mm-hmm. with no peating level. Mm, that's questionable. <laughs> you think there's a bit of minimal peat getting through there? I'm thinking that the barley is completely unpeated, but they maybe don't clean their stills all the time. That checks out. Right. And certainly they're not, you know, the mash tun, that old cast iron <laughs> right. mash tun that they have. It's yeah. tremendous. It's such I a mean, wonderful distillery. I mean, they do so what wonderful. they do, and if I get a hazel burn that's as clean as could be with no peat, wonderful. If I get a hazel burn that's got a bit of peat and is heavy, eh, no complaints there either. But you had asked me what I put into my glass, and I have to say, where the heck did I put the bottle? Uh, I don't know. Oh, there it is. It's right in front of me. I put the very first single cast nation Glen Murray Ooh. bottling. So that's our 12-year-old first fill bourbon barrel. And this was bottled in August 2012. Is that right? That makes sense. It was part of the second outturn, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, it's it's one of those funny ones. I I sometimes think about Glen Murray being in our first release to Nation members, but no, it was only... It only started in the second. It started in the second, right? But but mm. just like just like with Aaron being in our first, being a, a, a good partner to us, Glenn Murray has historically been a, a good partner with us as well. Oh, hundred percent, yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah. Ian Allen, who you know, anytime we find ourselves in the Highlands of Scotland, we make sure to stop over in Elgin. We make sure that we visit. Ian at the distillery for the latest information, and we make sure we go out for dinner and drams with Ian as well. Mm. And so Glenn Murray, you know, you know, I don't want to wax too lyrical, but Glenn Murray has a very special place in my heart, mm-hmm. partly as that single cast nation collaborative partner, but also 
just a spot that plays home to very dear friends. Yeah. Yep. 100%. And a place that for me feels like a home away from home. It really does. 100%. I, I, I just, I feel so comfortable there and. Well, and the fact that the very first time we met Kirsty was in the visitor center with Ian. Mm-hmm. You know, for somebody who's based at Star Law in Edinburgh, to have actually had our first meeting with her at the distillery was a wonderful introduction. And we could tell at that first meeting that we were going to get along just fine <laughs> uh, with with the wonderful Kirsty McCallum, and. You know, that was the very end of January. That was the last work trip I went on. Oh, that's right. In January. (laughs) Right? And off the back of that, we'd said, oh, we're going to be back in Scotland in April. We've never toured a grain distillery. Could we come meet you, Kirsty, at Mm -hmm. Star Law? Have a look around, you know, discuss casks and cask management and, and interview you on site. And we had that date in our calendar. It was, I, I don't quite remember, it was something like April 8 or April 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were going to do that in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, middle of March, <sighs> kibosh on absolutely everything. And you and I were bitterly disappointed yeah. that we lost the opportunity to have a tour of a Scottish grain distillery. But as our listeners will hear in this interview, we don't shy away from asking questions about Star Law. And, and I was so comfortable in Kirsty's company over Zoom, as all of our meetings are happening now, <laughs> that I even asked for explanations about grain distillation that I'd never fully been able to put together in my own head brains. And she was able to articulate grain distillation beautifully oh, yeah. to the point oh, where yeah. I, I feel much more confident thinking about it, selecting casts of grain, uh, thinking about the maturation process and just knowing how that distillate works. Mm-hmm. And so while I'm still bummed we didn't get a tour of the physical facility, boy, did we ever have a good chat with Kirsty about it. Yeah, I, well, two things. I picture myself going back to this conversation a few times and and likely because of the conversation around grain distillation, because like you, you know, I had a cursory understanding of it and at least enough to get by in a tasting or something like that. If someone really pressed me, I'd I'd have to say, I'll check in and get back to you. So, (laughs) So that'll be really good. But, you know, just spending the time with Kirsty. I could have spent another couple of hours talking with her because the the conversation was it was everything that I wanted it to be. You know, all the geeky stuff, all the the stuff of learning about her career and and blending and having cordials, having, you know, different types of spirits inform how she tastes whiskey like so many things I would never even thought to ask. I wouldn't put those two things together to equal her answers. And it was just an enlightening conversation. Yeah, the fact we got to talk to somebody who's clearly a young woman and has had a two decades long career Mm. already. Mm -hmm. You know, she's off to a rollicking start. And so getting to ask questions about 
each stop along her her career, mm-hmm. even even to the point of being a global brand ambassador for three years, and how that looks compared to being in a lab, having on your lab coat, doing scientific analysis. And now here you are on planes, flying to global festivals, pouring the product, mm-hmm. talking to people, getting immediate and instant feedback, you know, and how that then informs being back in the lab or making choices, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. We, we were incredibly lucky. We, how to put this? <laughs> We only have to be responsible for two episodes of One Nation Under Whiskey a month. Mm-hmm. And we're not hurting for people to interview. And you and I get to reach out to people with whom we want to chat mm. and from whom we wish to learn more. Mm-hmm. And and Kirsty was absolutely somebody who we wanted to sit down with and have this type of of open ended chat, and 100%. and I, I do I, I think we're incredibly lucky getting to do this, and and at all times I've said this before on other episodes, I think about our dear listeners at every turn, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I try to represent them as as well as I can, as well as myself and us and Single Cast Nation and so sure. on and so forth, and I'm always asking myself. Is this the type of thing our listeners want to hear? And I am firmly convinced that today's episode interview is going to contain a conversation that they firmly want to hear. So I wanted to to start in a place that you and I, Joshua, actually haven't started in in a little while and you're going to like this idea because originally it was yours and we've moved away from it. Ooh. Oftentimes, Kirsty, at, at, um, at different tastings, what have you, I'll start out with my younger life and obviously growing up in Ayr, not too far away from Glasgow, you know, blue collar family, a, a bunch of really terrible whiskey lying around at family gatherings <laughs> with various uncles getting drunk on whiskey and various aunts getting drunk on vodka. Um, and so, so we spend a little time at our tastings talking about the spark, what really got us going just mm. in our whiskey lives. And so for you, you were born and raised in Glasgow. What was your spark? My spark was actually started working in the industry. Um, I've always been a whiskey drinker. Right. My dad was a whiskey drinker. Um, but when I was younger and I was a student, it was more kind of um, whiskey and coke or Basically, whatever you could get your hands on. <laughs> um, uh-huh. <laughs> but then I left uni and I got a temporary job while I was looking for the job I really wanted in a distillery. And I never left after that. I just fell in love with it. That was it. And that's when my spark okay. happened. Wow. Okay, so what was the distillery that yeah. you that you found yourself at sure, through, your, through sheer happenstance? It was uh, Port Dundas in Glasgow, the Green Distillery. Oh, yeah. Oh, Okay. There you go. So this sounds like it wasn't just a summer tour leading job then. This sounds like you are actually... So what was your degree in and, and then what was the job, the temporary job that you took but, at Port and Dan? My degree is in chemistry. So I'd done my degree in chemistry and I'd got a job working in pharmaceuticals and I thought that's where mm-hmm. I wanted to be. 
But my boss had told me, unless I get a PhD, I wouldn't get much further in it. So I went back, done my PhD, mm. left. There was no jobs available with pharmaceuticals when I left. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to a distillery. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so what, what were you then responsible for in that, that first job? It was basically QC. It was looking after all the, the making sure the nose was right, the spirit, making sure all the analysis was right, GC, all the chemical side of it was correct. So it was a, a lot of quality control. Okay. okay. And you liked it? Wow. You liked, really liked it enough to stay in the industry for the rest of the, <laughs> So far for the rest of your career. Yes. Um, but it was, what, what did you find appealing about it? The whole thing, the whole tradition, the whole history of Scotch, the whole walking into a shop and seeing it all there on the shelf, the people mm. that I've never met. You, For me in the whisky industry, you're not a number. A lot of industries you go into, it's like you've got to do 200 samples a day, you've got to get this done, you've got to get that done. Whisky's not like that. It's actually, yeah. it's a lot more relaxed, it's a lot more laid back, everybody's genuine. It's, it's just a nice place to be. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Really and, and then how long did you end up being there? I was only there for six months before I moved to Chivas. Oh, okay. So, oh, okay. Wow. So, and what so were you we looking... With, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jason. No, just, we, we spoke with James Saxon back in, in January, and, and he doesn't have a chemistry background. He has a, an English literature background from St. Andrews. But, but once he found himself kind of with Chivas as, as a young man, he, his career seemed to just take off like a rocket. And so to hear of you being at Portland Das for six months, then moving into Chivas, like, like you sound like you've taken off like a rocket as well. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe you see it differently from being inside <laughs> I was. I'm, this, this is one nation under whiskey. You can be as immodest as you want to be, Kirsty. <laughs> it was basically, it was luck of timing as well that at the time when I was mm. at Port and Dast, um, Shivas started recruiting for new quality analysts. So I applied for that and through that I got a position in Shivas. So it was lucky. Okay. A lot of luck. Okay. Oh, you know, I was just explaining this to my kid at, at lunchtime. It's a great favourite expression of mine. I don't know how it'll trans translate for Glasgow, but born on third base and believes he hit a triple, right? So, so in baseball, you go first base, second base, third base, and then home for the run. Mm -hmm. So to be on third base and be like, well. I'm rather fantastic, am I? <laughs> no, it takes a lot of good luck and taking advantage of your luck. So I love hearing you say that. That is fantastic. What, so, so you went from Port Dundas grain grain distillery. When you moved to Chivas, what were you looking after when you first started there? I was basically I was looking after mature spirit. Uh, I walked at their blending facility at Dalmuir, just outside Glasgow, where they put all their blends mm. together. So I was in kind of looking after the quality of the blends before they went to bottling, uh, looking at, over, after the quality of their exports. Um, also, at that point in time, they had a lot of rums in their uh, portfolio as well. So I worked in the blending side of the rums too. So there was a, it was a good varied role. Oh, oh boy. Do we have a question for you? <laughs> Oops. Oh. Yeah. Do, do we want to ask the rum question now and, and get it covered, or do we want to punt the rum and, and ask the rum question now, later? You know what? We may forget about the rum. Let's, if okay. it's in your head, make it yeah, so, Jason. Yeah, yeah. You know, as, as, as a woman who's clearly well-versed in whiskey circles, and Joshua and I over here, you're running a, a whiskey business, you know, single cast nation, 
focuses on whiskey, but clearly rum has got people's attention. We're looking at rum more. We talk about bottling rums for whiskey drinkers. Yeah. For whiskey drinkers, we bottle rum for whiskey drinkers. When you were looking over, you were QC over rum blending, what were you looking for? What's what's a sign of a good rum? What's hmm. you know, <laughs> Explain that to me, please. <laughs> it's much the same as a whiskey. Every rum has its own okay. flavour profile, so you're looking for the rum to stick to that flavour profile. You're looking for certain characters to be there. You're looking for certain flavours to be there. You want certain intensities of things. It's, it's much the same as whiskey. Okay, okay. But Josh is thinking. But yeah, but when you're doing that, and 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 I, I do have to apologize. I, I'm not familiar with the rum brands that Shiv has had, but quite often what you hear with rum is okay after it's all been put together, then they dump a few pounds of sugar in there and some caramel coloring. So, a is that something you ever had to consider when working on the rums, or or did you have brands that, that didn't deal with any sweetening of the rum or coloring As, of the rum? Assuming you're allowed to talk about any oh, part of that, and, and if you're not, that's a good point. we completely understand. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 we didn't deal with any sweetening of the rum because you can't. We can't do that in the U. Uh, the Europe, it's part of the legislation. You're not allowed to add sugar in. You can't do that ah. to to the rum. Uh, so basically it was working with the raw spirit the same as you do with whiskey and bringing them together. The only thing we worked in that was okay. slightly different was spice rum, which you're adding the different okay. spices to and things like that and the flavours to. Yeah. But that is, that's a different category. Yep. Ah, different category. I like that, yes. Well, and if if I'm being honest, I, I spiced rum is a, is a guilty pleasure of mine. I like it every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> On a summer's night... Are you sipping it straight or are you mixing it with Coke? Lemonade. Yeah. Oh, lemonade. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Ah. I'll have to try that. Yeah. Okay. No lemonade being seven up Sprite. Yeah. You no, know no, that. No. I'm just saying it for listeners. Yeah. So yep. yep. Keeping the translation yep. not, going. Not, not American lemonade. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Spiced rum and southern iced tea. You know there are people drinking that. You know they are. And their teeth are falling out as they're drinking it. That's that's good to hear, though. I like what you're saying about the rum. It makes me feel a little bit more confident in you know using how we select whiskey, those parameters to then go ahead and select rum. So yeah. that's good to hear. Yeah. Okay. So so you're with Chivas. You're looking after mature stock blends, rums, and then you moved on to. So how long were you there for? And, and then what was the next part in your whiskey journey? I was in Chivas at Dalmuir for about a year and a half. And then okay. I moved up to Keith up in Speyside to work in their technical centre. I got the job as their development chemist. So basically looking after the chemistry lab. So I moved up to Chivas, uh, up to Glen Keith to do that. Um, okay. Part of that role was also looking at malt whiskey. So I, I was involved in the sensory panels for matured malt and also for new meat malt spirit as well. So that that got my interest going in malt, really. That was that was where my, my love of malt came into it. Um, that was great. I was there for it was about a year and a half I was up there for before I moved back down to Glasgow. I was basically, a, I'm a city okay. girl and I, I had to move back to the city. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what being outside of Glasgow was like, but I think you answered that question. <laughs> I, I, another question for you, again, based off the, the way Josh and I select, 
one of the things we're looking for in older whiskies, and, and generally of a day, of an evening, I'm not reaching for older whiskey. It's not really what, what I'm looking for at the end of a busy day. But we understand people who buy single cast nation are looking for such things. One thing that guides us is we're always looking for the, the distillery character, the spirit character mm-hmm. to be present, even if it's spent 25, 30 years in sherry. For you, you know, doing that within a distillery and, and within, a, within a larger company, is it a similar idea, similar profile? Are you looking for something else? And then how much do you find where the wood has just overwhelmed and the distillery character has become low? For me, there's always got to be a balance. There's no point in drinking a whiskey it tastes like a sherry. <laughs> You're buying whiskey. So we make lovely new spirit off the still, so you want it to shine through. For me, when I'm drinking whiskey, I love a really good bourbon whiskey, bourbon cask whiskey, because I feel yeah. mm-hmm. you get the character of that spirit coming through. You can really see the distillery shining through. I will always try to balance the flavours. I have seen mm-hmm. casks where I thought, no, there's, if I've been doing finishings and things, I thought, no, that's gone a bit far. There's, we've hidden too much of the actual character of the spirit. So I'll always try to keep the character of the spirit there. I'm a very strong believer in mm. you make the spirit uniquely, why then put in something that makes all taste the same? Yeah, agreed. I want to go on a slight tangent there if you wouldn't mind. So so let's say you're given a bunch of samples from, from the stock in the warehouse and you find a portion of them ha- have gone past, right? They're, they're overripe. The wood is completely taken over. From your perspective, given all, all your years working with the whiskey, is that something that you just try to slowly work into a blend if it's possible, if, if it fits the blend profile? Can you turn a whiskey around, like if it's a sherry cask, can you turn it around by popping it in bourbon or popping it into something refill or something like that? Like, is there any saving of these whiskies that have just gone too far? Yes, there is a saving of the whiskies. Um, I recently worked on a product, well, it was a couple of years ago, I worked on a product where it was an Oloroso cask and mm. Oloroso cask had got quite woody. So the th- thinking was, what can we do to to change that, to get some sweetness back into the character? So mm. we actually found it was a, a, a different type of sherry. It wasn't PA, it was a cream sherry. So we found this cream sherry and we thought there's Oloroso in there, there's PX in there, that might just be enough to lift the character back up of the spirit. It oh, was okay. in, the, in, the, the, in the cream sherry cast for six months and then it was ready to bottle because it did just give oh, it a wow. move. It just lifted it back up. Wow. Very interesting. Wow. Hmm. Did you imagine that when you set it up or, or, you know, obviously what you've just described there, but going into it, were you, what were your percentages of confidence? I was hopeful. I was hopeful because yeah. the, the PX was, the, the PX that was in the cream sherry was a very, very deep PX. So I thought there is a really good chance this is just going to balance it that little bit more, take a bit of the tannin off the back of it and let it come through again. Ah. Uh. Okay, so really? it's so it's That's rounding out those tannins. That that yeah. seemed to be the key there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. See, yeah, that's fantastic. That, that is so smart. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> I really love that. <laughs> See, this is this is how you know it's a whiskey conversation rather than an interview because you've now got both of us in our own heads thinking through that. We're not. 
moving on to the next question. <laughs> We're like, okay, let me just pause for a second. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really tremendous. It's it, it is interesting, obviously, for us in selecting the single cast, mm-hmm. where it's either got it or it hasn't, and you either select it or you don't. But as we say to anybody who listen all the time, these casks have long and varied lives and they're going to find themselves in other realms. And so to be able to talk about it, having a future, having another life, makes me very happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the things that's special about casks that I always think as well, I think, for the last few years, there's been so much of a focus on first fills. Everybody, mm. Is it a sherry cask? Mm. Is it a bourbon cask? Is it, you know, it's always got to be first fill, first fill. See some of the flavours you get for a good refill cask? Absolutely phenomenal. You let the whiskey shine, you let the whiskey come through, and you get a softer character to it. It's more rounded, it's more integrated. But for some reason, the industry kind of lost itself for a while, and oh, it's got to be sherry, oh, it's got to be bourbon. But there's some beautiful yeah. whiskeys out there in refill. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're both nodding our heads right along with you. Like, absolutely. Yeah, some of my absolute favourites are, are Young Isla whiskies in refill. And and we do, we talk about it as it's almost like tasting a mature new make spirit where the cask hasn't bombarded that liquid and it's just been allowed to kind of grow up within itself. Yeah, totally. Really lovely. Yeah, oh. yeah. Yeah. This is the thing. We love finding out about people's palate. I'm learning already, or, you know, 20 minutes into this, I'm learning so much about your palate, and I'm loving it, and it's jiving so well with our palate that we already bought a lot of Glen Murray, but I can see us buying a lot more in the future as well. Right. So, uh, Cutty Sark is going to be something to watch out for uh, with your palate in charge. I yeah. hope so. Um, but we'll, we'll circle back to that as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to get too far ahead of I, I want I want to get there. Because I, I love how your story is informing now where you are with Glenn Murray and Cuddy Sark and, and, and everything else that's on your plate that we probably don't know about. <laughs> so, okay, so here we are. You're, you're at Chivas. You're looking after mature stock. Then, then you move up to Glen Keith for a while. And then you leave, you leave Chivas because you need to get back to Glasgow. What's, what's, your, next, what's your next stop <laughs> along your journey? My next stop was Allied de Mac. So I went ah, to work for Allied Distillers, yeah, yeah. down in Dumbarton. Mm. So um, I was there for seven years. Uh, it was a combination of a role. It was part chemistry, but there was also part liquid development. But it wasn't whiskey I was actually working in most of the time. It was rum and gin and liqueurs. Oh, so interesting. It was like things like uh, Malibu, bits and pieces like that I was working on. So it was a kind of change to a different direction. But it also hmm. helped with the whiskey side because it brought in new things that I was learning from the different types of spirits. Well, that's interesting, though, that you you spent seven years learning through the lens of other spirits and other liqueurs and so forth that would then still inform how you would work in whiskey. What did you learn in that time that you that you think you only could have learned working with those spirits that you may not have learned only working with whiskey? I think it was development of my palate. I think it actually really helped develop different sides to your palate. You could see different flavours coming through. You could identify things. 
It also helped me uh, when it came to things like, and one thing we do do is like you make whiskey liqueurs and things like that. So cream, cream products informed me on that side of it as well. So I have a little bit of uh, experience on putting together those kind of products. Mm-hmm. Um, the analysis side of it was still whiskey. It was 100% whiskey. So I, I kept my finger in the pie, shall we say, and <laughs> just learned and developed my knowledge of basically the technical side of the industry. I was involved in um, if anything went wrong in the bottling hall, anything went wrong in maturation, getting involved in problem solving, getting involved in all sorts of things. So I was always involved from a technical side. I just wasn't doing as much nosing and tasting of whiskey as I had in the past. Mm. Okay. And and now... That makes sense. And so Allied was your last stop before moving to Glen Murray, La Martina Case... Nope. <laughs> nope. Oh, right. Okay. Good. Nope. Yeah, I, I don't want. Nope. I, I don't want to overlook any part of your journey. So please, go ahead. I was, what, what was next for Doctor Kirsty? <laughs> I was twelve years <laughs> at um, Burns Stewart Distillers Distill. So that's where I was working with Tobermory and Deanston and Bunnahaven. Ah, now it completes the puzzle. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so okay. So we're we're getting. Yeah. Now we can roll up our sleeves. Now we're rolling up our sleeves. Okay. So now we're getting to the part where you're working on Bunnahaven, you're working on Tobermory Lichig, you're working on Deanston. What did that look like? That was great fun. Absolutely great fun. I started for as a blender, working with the master blender, Ian McMillan. Mm-hmm. And I spent five years working for Ian. And I learned a lot during that time um, about whiskey and about the distilleries and about all sorts of things. So that was great. I looked after Bunnahaven. Basically, that was my my baby. Ian looked after Deanston and a couple of the blends. Mm-hmm. I was there for five, with him for five years. And then I moved on to being Global Brands Ambassador. And I spent about three years as Global Brands Ambassador because for me, a blender can spend too much time in a lab just mixing things together. How do you know what people actually want to drink? I could make yeah. a whiskey that I think is absolutely fantastic, but nobody may want to drink it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like my palate's got this flavour and nobody else's. So I had to go out and actually find out what people wanted to drink. So I got the opportunity of going out and basically travelling the world drinking and talking about whiskey, which oh. isn't a bad number. Right. Don't think anybody right. would, don't think anybody would refuse that one. <laughs> Tough job to get. Yeah, right. yeah. What, what, when were your when were your three years? So if you you would have started around two thousand seven. Done the five years to about 2012. Yeah, 2011. And then being on the road till about, okay, and then on the road till about 2014 or yeah, so. Yeah, And then back in as Master Blender after that. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So, okay, so I'm, I'm trying to think of the timeline here with, with Buna Haben. Are you the person who basically revamped Buna Haben, launched it at 462 uh, and this, this will have, I don't remember the year, so... So I'm going to lean on your expertise here. It was about 2010. Um, yeah. It was a combination of Ian McMillan and myself who okay. launched all the, the whiskies mm. into uh, Unchill Filtered. Yeah. Okay. J- Jason and I talk about this all the time, perhaps too much, especially seeing as it's now 10 years ago now. But there was such a difference between the Bunahaben 12 at 40% to the Bunahaben 12 at 46.2. Like it, it went from, yep, that's a decent little whiskey to wow, that, you know, it just captured your attention. It stopped you in your tracks. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think when we went to Unchill Filtered, 
But Bunnahaven was, the 12-year-old was about 60-70% sherry cask. Mm. And I think when you've got a sherried whiskey, if you can, you want to leave it unchill filtered because if you chill filter it, you're basically taking out a lot of the flavour that that sherry cask has put into mm-hmm. the whiskey. So why do you want to do that? So that's why I think what made such a big difference with the, the Bunnahaven. So there was no increase in the percentage of sherry and there was no re-racking into different or fresher sherry? Uh, we did have to do a little bit of re-racking, uh, but that was down to okay. quality of stock. But um, no, most, yeah. it was mostly right through its maturation. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Okay. It was a that's, a, that's a great thing to show people. You know, you know, we're, we're talking all the time about the benefits of non-chill filtration. Mm. To be able to put an example like that you know, chalk and cheese. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a significant difference. Yeah. You know, clearly the alcohol helped yes. uh, as well, but the non-chill filtering was carrying its way. Oh, well done. Good cast yeah. management as well. Put in a good cast management policy was key too, because for many years in the industry, way back, that wasn't a focus for people. But in the last oh, maybe okay. 10, 15 years, hmm. it's become a massive focus. And just putting a good wood <laughs> management policy in really helped too. Just, just while we're talking about wood, and to tie it back to what we just said a moment ago about this love of first fills and, and you know this moving away from refills, a lot of the people that I speak to, and you know, I, I don't mind putting a name on this, but I think maybe Jim McEwen led the charge in this because he was you know to the front of talking about it. But I think there was a concern that by the time you got down to a refill, you could take a distillate that was wonderfully oily and carrying a lot of flavour. And going into a refill where it might remove some of those oils, chemically speaking, just as a chemist, is there is there much to that idea? Because clearly you've already said you like refills mm-hmm. and we like refills. Mm-hmm. You know, is there any concern that that dry, dusty note or that dry cardboard note that we sometimes talk about can be attributed to refills? No. Or is have we maybe made a leap there? For me, I would say the dry cardboard you note is down to bad wood. It's down to a cask that is exhausted. When mm. you need a, mm-hmm. for you, a refill should still have a lot of life in it and it should still have a lot of potential. But as it gets older, you are going to get to a stage where it gets to that cardboardy kind of position. But that's basically mm-hmm. a cask that shouldn't be there. Uh, I'm okay. with you. I am with you. So to, so to clarify, and, and again, this is something we point out in all of our tastings, for, for us, we talk about First fill, second fill, and then a, a third or a fourth or a fifth, you know, potentially could go on. But being a refill, are you talking about a second fill being a refill? We will. I, I do like second Because I've heard that in yeah, the industry as well. Yeah, that's kind of a new one as well because a lot of people just said refill before. Uh, mm. Now it's second fill sherry, second fill bourbon. Um, sure. yeah, yeah, we stood. I would use a, for single malt, I would use a cask three times basically. I choose it first, second, and if it's still a really good cask, three times. If it's not a really good, ca- if it's a, an average cask, it will go probably for grain maturation after that. But you do get casks mm-hmm. that are just absolutely superb. That like I might bring in a whole load of bourbon casks from Kentucky, and there'll be three casks in that whole load that are just absolutely outstanding. They come wow. at the same time; they're in the same batch, but there'll mm. just be something about them that is totally. Because every cask is slightly different; it's totally natural. Sure. So. You get different characters from different casts, and sometimes you can get a cask that's a refill that you can use again. We've had stuff that's had a um, 14-year-old spirit in it. We've taken the spirit out. The spirit's been fantastic. And we've actually been able to put malt back into it because the, the wood is still great. 
Absolutely great. Oh, okay. It's just it's all about managing it. Yeah. So we're we're slowly creeping to the to the Glenn Murray uh, aspect of the conversation, but I, I just uh, if you wouldn't mind, I just want to close this thought around wood wood management out just a little bit. What you hear quite often distilleries talking about, oh, you know what, we, we've changed our wood management policy. We're, you know, we're now, you'll start seeing better whiskeys from us. We did this because of A, B, or C. But I don't think it's ever been explained what it looks like to change a wood management policy. Like, right. Right? I mean, what, what, is that, what does that look like for logistically? It's, it's basically what you do is you look at your inventory, you, and you'll look at your forecasts for sales and you'll see what kind of split you have in your products and what kind of cast they need. You then build your wood uh, wood management process around that. So you'll be mm-hmm. say you need 20% of the new make spirits got to go into sherry wood, 30%'s got to go into bourbon wood, the rest is going into refill. So it's knowing what your whiskey is going to be used for and how it's going to be adapted to different things in the future. Um it's also knowing the quality of your wood and spending time for the quality so that, as I say, you know whether it's first, second onto grain or it's first, second used for a third time. Yeah. Um, it's also about building relationships with your cast suppliers uh, for your first fills to make sure you're getting good quality casts in in the first place. So there's lots of uh, there's lots of things like that going. So you get nice trips to Spain and nice trips to Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> We've done that trip to Spain. Oh, we're, we wanted to do it again this year That's too. Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so good to go in January. <laughs> still be warm. Still be warm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. No, that's that. That's brilliant. And then, and then is part of it too. If if you have an understanding of your stock being mostly in refill, or or, or maybe there's concerns of, of certain parcels of your stock, you then have to look at finishing, right? Not particularly. You might look at re well re racking. Re racking, I should say. Yeah, 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 yeah. You might look at re racking. Um, if you were in a sherry cask that hadn't done very much for the whiskey, you might put it into a fresher sherry cask to try and get mm. a little bit more influence in there. Um, I would tend to not say finishing was done for casts that were not that, because you need a good base for a finished whiskey. You need a good base if you're mm. going to put another flavour on top of it. So mm. you actually, you use some really good first fill bourbons and some really quality refills when you finish a whiskey, because you want that flavour still to be there. You're adding to it. You're adding another layer. So mm. it's quite it's, it gets quite complex. It, de- it, ju- it depends what you're looking to do with that whiskey. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that. It, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like hearing that finishing needs to be done on a strong base because I, I think part of the mythology around finishing is you take a knackered or a tired cask with dried out whiskey and you stick it into another cask to see if you can get some, some flavours back on top of it. Yeah. It's nice to hear that the, the two work in tandem uh, with one another. Yes. Definitely, um, because you want that flavour. You're, you're putting on the label that has been in this other cast beforehand, so you want some of that flavour from that cast to be there. Otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> 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 so I don't want to gloss over anything uh, regarding your your time, your twelve years, right, with 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 Bunahab and Lechig and 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 Deanston. Is there any other part of your time with them that helped inform? 
now, and please correct me if I'm wrong, now your final move to Glen Murray? I would say yes, because um, at uh, Burn Stewart, I was also in charge of looking after Scottish Leader and Black Bottle, their blended whiskies. Oh, yeah, sure. So that's, that's helped me a lot, especially moving into where I am now with the Cutty Sark coming on board. That really mm-hmm. has been beneficial. Yeah, Black Bottle's a, a great little blend. Really great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Got a lot of time for Black Bottle. It is a lovely Cutting blend. in the US. Like as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've got, I, I still like a nice <laughs> 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 well, Since we're probably going to continue to focus on the, the blending and the cast selection, I just want to spend just a second. Three years on the road, global brand ambassador, traveling the world, eating and drinking on the company dime. By the end of three years, could you have done it for another three? Were you reaching a point where that was a good thing, but a bit like moving through to Glen Keith? Being back in Glasgow was was a good thing, and actually being hunkered down was a good thing. Partly that I, I always wanted to go back into blending. The whole target was to become a master blender. So when it became there was a chance of doing that, I thought I, I had to go for it. Uh, plus, it was my whiskies. It was the whiskies I knew inside out. So yeah. I thought that this is ideal. There was part of it was the, the travelling does get to you after a while because you're <laughs> dropping one suitcase and picking up another one to go. So um, it's not yep. as glamorous as it sounds, but I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. And after a couple of years of being at home, it was kind of like, when's my next trip? Can I get a trip? Can I go somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feeling that right now during lockdown. Yes, so <laughs> I, ne- I never thought I'd feel like that. I, you know, it was always, oof. When can I get home? When when can I get back? And now all of a sudden I'm, you know, climbing up the walls. When can I get out again? Yes. Yeah. I've actually had two holidays to the States cancelled so far this year, so I oh, am climbing no. the walls. <laughs> mm. Yeah, we, I've, had, I've had at least two trips to Scotland cancelled, uh, one of which in April we were meant to see you yeah. and, and do this interview there. Yep, yeah, yeah. So. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for making time on Zoom. It's not quite the same as being at Star Law and seeing you in person and raising a glass together. But we're all making do. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, we'll soon. so w- <laughs> with Star Law in mind, so you you started off this conversation saying, "I got a I got a part time or a temporary job at Port Dundas, right? That's your beginning, and now here we are. You're officed in Star Law. You went from one grain distillery." to another grain distillery. And I think our listeners have a good understanding of of malt distilleries, mm-hmm. but like us, probably don't have such a great understanding of grain distilleries. So what's life like working with grain, working in a grain distillery as compared to a malt distillery? It's very different. It's a very different process. You, when you think of malt distilleries, you think of the nice wee buildings with the gouda roofs and very pretty and all the rest of it. A green distillery isn't like that at all. A green distillery is almost like a big factory. Basically, mm. it makes whiskey continually. It's always producing. It's a continuous process rather than batch. The whiskey's lighter in character than the malt, so it, it's a very, very different place to be. But the one thing people tend to do down green whiskey you hear things like it's a bulking product for blends or, oh, that's, that's the rubbish stuff or it's not getting much flavour. But actually, grain whiskey's got as much flavour as malt. It's not got the mm. depth or the oils, but each each grain has its own individual character and they, sure. they make such a difference to a blend. And see when you get an old an old grain whiskey in a beautiful cask, 
oh my god, beautiful whiskey. <laughs> you don't get the oils, you don't get the death, it's beautiful, smooth, fruitiness. It just, you taste it, sits for a couple of seconds, then disappears. It's so smooth and so rounded. And I just think that people don't give grain the credit it's due. No, agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lovely whiskey. We just did a tasting last week, and that, that's exactly what I was pitching to people. It's too easy to overlook grain. Yes, it is a large, large percentage of a bottle of blended whiskey. Mm. And it, it is easy to think of it as only that commodity. Mm. But the, the older stuff can be very special. Yeah. And, and so here's a question for you. So, so we bottled a, an Invergordon 26, and that's what we're tasting, uh, and a Cameron, uh, and a Cameron, and a Cameron Bridge, Bridge 26 as well. Are well, the numbers the same? No. Yep, they were. That, 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 right? So, yeah. so great, great, great whiskeys. And, and I was saying to people at the tasting, if you think about malt distilleries, we'll often talk about distiller, distillery character. Yes. Right? And earlier on, we are talking about that spirit they will work so hard on. Now, for me, Invergordon always has this melted ice cream, vanilla ice cream kind of quality to it, really beautifully creamy, unctuous. Starlaw, how would you describe, assuming you would, how would you describe Starlaw's spirit? Like, how, you know, how style, if you will. Starlaw is quite a fruity spirit. It's also got a little bit of kind of grassy notes at the background to it as well. Mm. It's not as heavy okay. as what... You, like um, North British or anything like it's quite a light grain. There's almost a, a kind of popcorny note to it occasionally. Oh, ah, okay. so it's, it's a lovely, okay. lovely kind of soft green whiskey. And, and what are the okay. grains? Is there a popcorn note in there because you're using maize as as part as part of the mash bill? We we actually move between maize and wheat. So at the moment we're on maize. We may use maize the majority of the time, uh, but we have the facility to move between. And recently, with the way things have been working, there's not actually, we've not noticed that big a difference between the character of the two spirits. Okay. Okay. Is it standard distiller's yeast, or is there a, a different yeast to, to tackle corn or wheat, um, more so than malt? No, I think we're using the same um, yeast. We're using distiller's yeasts, yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. And then are you, again, assuming you're, you're saying publicly, are you pulling at 94% alcohol? Uh, on the column still, are you pulling at a different number? No, 94, yeah. You can't go that much higher, okay. so yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I just wonder if there was... Do you find much from wiggle room going under it? Is there a range in which a grain distiller is allowed to pull their spirit at? We have a maximum that we're not allowed to pull the spirit off above. Uh, mm. There's no minimum, but okay. you will tend to be up about the 94s to pull off grain, to get okay. the purity of the spirit. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we, we talk about American light whiskey, mm. which is essentially American grain whiskey. Uh, oftentimes from LDI, MGP, that that old Seagram's place. <laughs> um, uh, and so, yeah, they'll, they'll go up to 94 and a half yeah, yeah. Uh, on that. Yep. Scottish distillers can go as high as 94 and a half. Yes. Yep. Can even. Wow. And then there's then it's vodka after that. It's vodka that's going to get spirit. Yeah. 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 Yep. Vodka, gin. Okay. Hand sanitizer. Would there be a reason to come lower on the number? I know you're saying there's no minimum stated. Would there be benefits to come to 92, 90, 88? Uh, you might keep more of the character. Um, basically, the reason we don't go above that is because we, to be called grain Scotch whiskey, it has to keep the character of the cereal that's been used to produce it. 
So sure. you can't lose the character of the actual spirit, that the, the cereal that's in there. Um, you would maybe start getting some impurities coming in if you, you lowered it down, you get more of the higher alcohols coming in, so you get a change in the profile. It might be slightly heavier, okay. so it might, it might not be as clean as it is at the, as, it is as green whiskey. Sure. And was it pre-1983 you could only use corn and it got changed to, to include wheat? Do you know? I am not sure. I do okay. not know. Okay. Okay. I was reading an I was reading an an article from 1985 over the weekend that talked about that switch. I know it went on the books to say you can use corn or wheat depending on best price, mm -hmm. but I didn't know for sure if pre that decision you could still make it with wheat, but you just couldn't call it grain whiskey. I wasn't too sure. I'm still kind of feeling that out right. for myself right now. Ah, right. Okay, I'm going to look into that myself because it's something I don't know about. So yeah, right. That's a, yeah. okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll email you the article right away. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Could, could you send it, it to is, me too? I don't is. know about this article. It's uber nerdy. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Tables, figures, oh, numbers as far as the eye can Please see. Please tell me there's a graph. Is there a graph involved? <laughs> oh a yes, sir. Oh yes, sir. <laughs> Oh, you. Oh, you. <laughs> oh, well done. Okay, I've got, if you wouldn't mind, I've got one last question regarding grain, but I, I but I really want to get into what you'll be doing with Glenn Murray, what you'll be doing with Cuddy Sark as well. You had mentioned at the very beginning that your job with Port Dundas was quality control or quality assurance, right? Yeah. Again, back to that, you know, unfortunate thought that grain whiskey is just sort of crappy stuff that's meant to get to three years and, and go into a blend so people can say, hey, give me a scotch on the rocks. You know, at the end of the day, blenders are looking for a consistency of product to, to ensure that their blend always tastes the same. So like, is, is quality control in, in a grain distillery different from quality control in a malt distillery? No, we do exactly the same kind of things. We'll monitor what the output is of the stills, if we're getting the right amount of alcohol from the grain. We'll do sensory to make sure there's no off notes. We'll look at the fermentation, look at cleaning. It's exactly the same. Ah, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you. That's good to know. I, I have a very embarrassing question about grain. This, this, and it speaks to kind of what you were saying earlier. You go around a malt distillery, it's pretty, it's obvious. A pot still makes 100% sense in my head. And then you open it, you can watch it, you can see it on the wash still, you can look through the glass. It's right there. On a column still, I feel like I'm standing next to an alien spaceship and, and, I, and I can see it with my eyes. I have no idea what's going inside of it and going on inside of it. And then any professional I speak to tells me, oh yeah, it's steam meets solids and then they go kaboom and then out comes the alcohol like you'd be just as well describing that to my dog right <laughs> he and i have as much understanding of this process now so like literally what's happening in a column still the the, the steam is rising from the below the solids are falling from the top and they meet each other and then boom yeah, you have and a different then, and then temperature. They make whiskey. You get temp different temperature profile as you go up. There's two columns. You get two. There's two okay. columns in a grain still. There's the rectifier and the analyzer. Mm. So 
Okay. But the analyzer is where you first make your kind of first rough sort of. It's like the first kind of pot still idea. Okay. The second. I'm with you. I'm with you. The second is your um, your rectifier, which is divided into plates. There's kind of sections yeah. all the way up it, and those plates will take off yeah. different bits of the spirit, different things that are in the spirit on the way up. So you're separate. Okay. It's basically the same kind of process, but more controlled. You're actually separating oh, things okay. out and taking it out. So in malt whiskey, okay. you've got your heads, your tails, your middle cut, and your middle cut will have all sorts of stuff in there. Whereas in grain distillery, some of the things you get in a malt middle cut are taken out by the plates in the still. So you're basically purifying, right. purifying, 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 purifying until you get to the point where you take off your alcohol. Okay, okay. So anytime I've heard taking out, I literally thought there was something like almost like a like a baby line arm coming out of the column still at each of those points. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, you're ta you're taking it oh, off. There is. You're taking it away. Yeah. Literally. Literally, you're removing yes. condensable vapors yes. to become wow. liquid. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Wow. okay. Okay, so it is going there, and then it's becoming purer and purer yeah. as it goes up. So here's my next question then. <laughs> does, oh, gosh, this, this might be more embarrassing than the first one. So does that then get combined? Like, what's, what's the use of having these different points that are condensed into liquids now all sitting in bit parts. There's actually some of them you can take off and make into product products. Like you've got your fusel oils, which come off. And fusel oils are actually they're not the most pleasant smells under the sun, but they're actually used as bases for perfumes and aftershaves and things like that. So oh, you is can, that like like a pear drop or no, or it's kind of a, acetone kind of note? No, fatty. Oh no, you're making a face that says <laughs> no, Jason. No, no. pear drops are lovely. No, no, Don't no, touch pear drops. No, no, what's a, what's a fuse? What would it be like? Kind Manure. Of, no, not quite the Smelly feet? Kind of... Smelly feet? Mancity oily Blue sort feet? of idea. Oh. Okay. So that, okay. Uh, Mancity oil here. Uh, yeah. Oil that's gone off. Okay. Uh, yeah, kind of a promotion yeah. paint kind of yeah. ideas. Okay. It's, okay. It's, okay. It's not the most okay. pleasant. Okay. That's why people are always shocked when you say fusel goes into perfume or aftershave. Because of like, how, right? how can that be used in an aftershave? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. So we do have... Okay. The, so, that gets tankered off and gets uh, we sell that as a byproduct to other industries to make whatever they make with it. So and the rest will just get recycled. Oh, so that's what's been confusing me in all of this. So I've I've known column stills are column stills are used in petrochemical industry, whiskey industry, um, perfume, fragrance yeah. industry, but I didn't realise that a grain distillery can be responsible for selling off the parts that then would go into the fragrance industry. Um, is, there, is there any part of it going to pharmaceuticals? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that okay. one. I, yeah. I know MGP I know. does. MGP okay. does do that. MGP they have in Indiana. medical applications for the alcohols that they're, that they're doing. So Okay, so it really is that top 94 last part that you're using as the grain distillery. Yeah, and what you try to do is, if you possibly can, is leave some plates at the top of your still so you've got room to play tunes on your character. Ah, okay. But um, okay. It, it just depends what plate I mean, you decide to bring off your, your spirit at, what suits the character you're looking for. Sure. I feel like a load has been taken off my shoulders this day. <laughs> I, thanks to Dr. Kirsty McCallum, I understand column distillation. For the first time in my life, and I'm forty bloody six years old. 
and I've been around pollen fields. Okay. I wouldn't say oh. I know inside out either, I'm, but um. <laughs> wow. I feel like I need a cigarette. Like that's such a moment. I guess. Wow. I, I, in, the, in the absence of a, of a cigarette, I am going to have a Glen Murray. Oh, oh, nice. That's... Oh, thank you very much, Kirsty. Good to be able to ask the embarrassing question and not get laughed at. Jason, is this the first Glen Murray we bottled in 2012? Well, yep, that's it. There you go. First Phil Bourbon, 12 years old. Nice. And it's perfect for this conversation. So speaking of Glen Murray, we've, we've now hit that part of the conversation. So you, you started not too long ago, late 2019, if I'm, if I'm understanding that correctly. Nine months. <laughs> yeah, nine months. Okay. <laughs> nine so, months. <laughs> So what's what's on your plate? What is it? What is a typical day in Dr. Kirsty McCallum's life look like when it comes to work? At the moment, I would say there's no typical day. Um, in fact, to this job, there's ne- there never actually is a typical day. Every every day is different. Um, it will be assessing casks. It will be working out recipes for products going to bottling. It will be coming up with new recipes. It, there's all sorts of different things I'll be doing. Every day is slightly different. There's no one day the same as the next. Do you feel a sense of, of stewardship, you know, that, that you have to keep certain things intact, especially, obviously, you've got Glen Murray as a single malt. Cuddy Sark is, you know, being such a well-known blend throughout the world. Yeah. What of you has a sense of stewardship and what part of you feels the freedom to say, you know what, I'm going to change it up a little bit. I'm going to put my stamp on this to show that this is this is the new generation of Cuddy Sark. This is the new generation of Glenn Murray. For me, I think I'm quite a traditionalist. Um, I want to stick with the history and the tradition, especially something like Cutty. Cutty has got such a history. It's known for being this nice, gentle drinking blend whiskey. I want to keep it that way. I want to stay there, but I'll do what I can to do tweaks on it to improve the quality, to change it slightly without changing the overall ethos of the brand. You, need, you want to keep the, the integrity of that brand there. You want to keep the integrity of the story there. You don't want to lose it. But there are things you can do to, to play. You get new expressions, maybe just um, changing the ratio of cast slightly. Bits and pieces like that you can do to, to improve or to change, but without losing the, the overall integrity of the product. Yeah, you know, with, with, with Cuddy Sark in mind, I remember my first ever, the first time I ever heard of the brand I think, could be wrong, but I think it was April 1st, 1979, and we had just moved in to our new house, and my dad, to celebrate, got a bottle of Cuddy Sark. <laughs> and, right, and it may, have been, it may have been like the 12-year-old, it may have been the age-stated one, or my brain is perhaps just making that up, but to him, it was... This, this is a time to celebrate. I'm going to get a bottle of Cuddy Sark. <laughs> that's and, nice to hear uh, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> even in in Scotland it's such an iconic brand because there used to be a bridge in Glasgow that was called the Cutty Sart Bridge um, it's just so well known and it is the one your grandpa or your dad had a bottle in the back of the cupboard at Christmas and that came out the drinks cabinet you couldn't sure. miss that label no matter where you go because of the, the, the ship and the big yellow bit in the label it was just it's such that's an right. iconic whiskey it's one of the most iconic I think out there so, so clearly, the, you know, the way you articulate this, 
is you recognize what you're walking into. On the day-to-day, as you're sitting down and talking about a tweak here and a tweak there, how much is it on your shoulders that this is iconic and you are playing with history? For me, I'd say 100%. <laughs> it's, 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 it's something you always have to keep recognition of. There's so many people who love Cutty Sark, you can't do anything to change it too much because you're going to lo- you might lose that loyal fan base. Yeah, you also, sure. as you said before, you're the custodian, you are the steward of that brand. All these other master blenders have come before and worked on that brand and kept it where it was and worked it through. You can't just come in. You've got to have a respect for history and for other people's work. No, that, that makes good mm. sense. My follow-up for you is actually coming from Joshua earlier when, when he talked about overhauling a company's wood management policy and what that would look like. My question is, what does it look like when you walk into a brand spanking new company and you're in charge of everything <laughs> that your eyes fall upon? <laughs> <laughs> um it looks like basically a long time to learn what there actually was there in the first place. <laughs> uh-huh. and Glenn Murray has really had a pretty good wood policy up till now. Some of the casts I've found in Warehouse 1 since I've started have been absolutely exceptional. There's some really unusual casts and some really different casts in there. Uh-huh. Um, right. be- some bur- beautiful bourbons sitting there as well. So... Glen Murray have always seemed to be quite in there in their cast management. They've done all the experimental stuff for Glen Murray. So there's a lot of good wood at Glen Murray. Yeah, that's great to hear. Great. Yeah, we, you know, we try to go to Glen Murray every time we go to Scotland, every time Jason goes back home and visiting that warehouse one to see the fun bits, the oddities, just, you know, can spend a, a good while in there. Oh, yes. I'll be up tomorrow and I'm going to get lost in there for the whole day. <laughs> so, so, so that's, that, actually, that, that's a follow-up question right there is, you know, we hear about Master Blenders going through 200 samples before lunch, but they're going through them at 20% alcohol. Are you of the... 20% school, do you start somewhere else and go to the 20%? Do you start at the 20% and go somewhere else? What's what's your process for taking mm. stock of the stock? <laughs> I will tend to start at higher alcohol. I'll start round about what would be the, the bottling strength of that whiskey. If I'm in a warehouse and I don't have facilities to dilute it, it's basically straight off the gas and you taste it. But yeah. um, if I'm working in the lab and I have the samples, I will taste a sample at bottling strength. And then I'll reduce the sample down to 20% because you get two totally different flavour profiles coming through. And really by looking at both of them, you can get the full picture of that whiskey. Man, I've always had such a hard time with the 20%. Um, It really tastes like a muddy puddle (laughs) a lot of the time. (laughs) That's about right. (laughs) (laughs) Like uh, like I might might try it cash strength and then take it down to maybe 46, but... But going down to 20, and, and speaking to um, someone like Becky Harris at Catoctin Creek Distilling Company just up the road from me, where she's the, the master distiller there and the master blender, she's talked a little bit about women traditionally have done a better job at 20% alcohol than men have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm willing to believe that. Have you got any experience in that? Do you, do you, do you think women might be better than men? 
Of course. It <laughs> <laughs> was a rhetorical question. <laughs> there, there has been, there's a lot of hearsay in the industry and there has been a few papers that have shown that women do supposedly have better palates than men. Mm. I don't know whether we mm-hmm. do or we don't or whether it's just different people have different palates and, you know, right. you're lucky if you've got somebody that had a good palate or, in the test or I think it might be more that way. Um yeah. And I'm not one of these believers in, you hear people go on about like women and whiskey, they like these flavours or those flavours or the next flavours. I don't believe in that either. I don't believe there's flavours for women and there's flavours for men. It's just flavour. Mm-hmm. Whatever your palate yeah. likes, yeah. likes. I love Lagavulin, I love Refroig. But is that a whiskey that most people would think that women would enjoy? No, they think you go to the soft and gentle and light. But everybody likes everything. It's, yeah. you know, it yeah. just depends on your personal opinion. Yeah, I, I agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah, I think this 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 may have been last week. I don't know. Time doesn't really mean anything. Uh, but we nope. we do so. This podcast is released every other week, and then every fill in week, we've now incorporated a, a, a secondary podcast called Extra Extra. It's all about whiskey, where we we find an article that we find interesting, we read it. And then we make commentary on it. We do our own uh, editorializing of it. And so the last one was an article from a guy named James Tapper. And the headline read something like, more women are entering the, the whiskey industry and now they're calling the shots. And it was just about you know more women getting into the industry, making whiskey, being ambassadors, so on and so forth. And I was talking with my wife as I'm creating the masthead for this. And I showed her the headline, and and the headline said, and now they're calling the shots. And my wife said, why are you including now? Just said women are calling, just say women are calling the shots. And my point to her was, A, the article says that, like that was their headline, so I don't want to change that too much. But then B, I had this general understanding, and maybe it's wrong, and that's where this question is leading, that that it is a, a newer phenomenon, isn't the word, but it's, it's, it's a change. It's an evolution of the inclusion of more women in the industry. So here you are now, I'm terrible at math, so I don't know how many years, but from 20. your 20, okay. So <laughs> yeah. from 20 years ago to today, have you seen a change within the industry? And I hope you don't mind us asking this this question. I usually don't like asking gender-type questions, but it came up, and so I hope it's okay we're asking that. Of course, no problem. Um, I would say we're seeing more women in more senior positions. There has always been a lot of women in the whiskey industry, but mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's people working behind the scenes, like working in the labs, working in the sensory labs, working in the analytical labs, working in marketing, sales, working in the bottling. There's always been a lot of women in the industry, but they tend not to be in as prominent roles as the guys were. And mm. in recent years, you have seen a bit of a switch that there's more women coming to the fore in the more prominent roles, like the master distillers, master blenders, directors and companies, things like that. There is a, a slight change in that. That's brilliant. Yeah, aside from our, our beloved Ian Allen, I have a very hard time thinking of a visitor centre manager who's not female. And then a very hard time until very recent history thinking of a master blender who wasn't male. And so 
having those getting mixed up and evolving, mm. I think, is a very good thing for the industry. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. I, I know we're, we, we said we'd be talking for about an hour or so. Uh, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But so, so here you are. You're nine months into your time with, with Glenn Murray. Yeah. And with, with Cuddy Sark. And, and quickly, are you, are you in charge of Label 5 as well? What, what else is on your plate? Label 5, Sir Edwards, Cutty Sark, and Glen Murray. Right. So basically okay. all their whiskies. All right. So when's the next... When do you get to take a holiday? <laughs> <laughs> I don't because it's been cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've, you've got these four brands. What has you most excited? Look, looking forward the next two, three, four, five years, what, what's exciting you about the, the brands that you're working with and the whiskey industry in, in general? Most of my excitement at the moment comes from Cutty Sark and Glenbury. That's the two, brand, blend, uh, two brands I tend to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. Um, Cutty, because there's so much potential with Cutty, there really is. It's a great whiskey. It needs to get back to where it was before because mm. it has kind of gone down a little bit in recent years. It needs to get back to being as prominent as it was before because it is an absolutely great, great dram. And mm. Glen Murray has so much potential. I think in a lot of ways, Glen Murray has flown under the radar for a long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes 100%. Seen, yeah, seen as a supermarket late, uh, whiskey, you know what I mean? The, it goes onto the shelf at a certain price and it's it's there, but it's, it's not a great whiskey. Glen Murray's fantastic. The spirit okay. is beautiful. Agreed. Yeah. It's a good cast with Glen Murray is, oh, you can get something that's out of this world. And I'd love to bring that more to the fore and actually show Glen Murray up for what it actually can be so that the whiskey nerds of the world recognise Glen Murray for what it should be rather than just, oh, I don't yeah. drink that because you can get that for $20 on the shelf. It's, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Quick, quick, quick story, Jason. I know you have something to say, but I may forget this. So if you wouldn't mind, years ago when I when I first got into whiskey, somehow or another, someone told me about Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, and so I said, "Oh, that's interesting." And I learned about the numbering system and blah blah blah, all of that, right? And and then I started buying you know, various whiskeys from them. And someone had, I forget who it was, someone turned me on to, you know, number 35 dot whatever it was, right? And I said, holy crap, what is this? I don't remember the the cat. I don't remember which one it was. But from that taste, I that became the number one um, number within the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society that I would look at. It would be 35, followed by 125, the occasional 33, and and then three, right? I, lo- I love Bowmore. And so, and so then I started discovering, and it gets back to what you were saying with Warehouse One, I started discovering Glen Murray in New Chard Oak and discovering oh. Glen Murray and, you know, all of these different kinds of casks. And, I, and people would say, I'm, I'm no longer a member of Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, but people would always have their favorite number. And I would say, oh, you know, 35, hands down. They'd say, Glenn Murray, really? I said, but, you know, <laughs> isn't there stuff, the cheap stuff on the shelf? I said, yeah, try it single cast, cast strength. Try it 
where it's not been chill filtered. Try it where you've got all the alcohol and, and you will be sold. You will be changed. Your opinion, the opinion you once had previously doesn't matter anymore because Glenn Murray is gorgeous. Go, Jason. Totally. And, I'm going to. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go on. No, no, you go there. You... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to add on to your story. The first time we sat down with Ian Allen and then distillery manager Graham Cool mm. at the distillery, we said, we will take any 35 35s you have going spare. <clears throat> and that's the Glen Murray in the new charred oak. That yeah, was released. 13 years in New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, 35, 35. And, and they both said, yeah, there's none of those available right now. And, <laughs> um, and just within the last two years, we were offered a new chart. So, Ooh. and it didn't, didn't become anything because of obviously transition, but new chart Oakland Murray. And um, so, Sorry, what were you going to say? You're just going to get put ideas in my head now. (laughs) (laughs) Even like Glenn Murray, you look at the stuff that's on this, the the classic range, and it's actually, there is nothing about it that is a cheap whiskey. It's so accessible. It's, what I'm sitting with just now is a port finish. Because if you want a whiskey, you just want to sit and have a few whiskeys, not think too much about it, just sit and enjoy a dram. Glenn Murray's perfect for it. It's, yep, it's, a, it's a lovely whiskey just to sip. Yeah, and during our chat at this portion, I'm drinking the Peter's PX finish from 2010, and it's just doing everything that I want it to do, and 55.8% alcohol. Right. That was right. that is a beautiful that was a bottle. good pickup. That's a beautiful bottle. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah, really happy with that. You picked up something, Joshua? What's it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So what I was going to say is, one of my all-time favorite Glenn Murray's is is the the, the final release of oh, the Mountain Oak, right? Yeah. Where it was just all all new oak, and it's just so gorgeous. It's it's amazing how well Glenn Murray works in in just a series of different casks. It's just yeah. phenomenal. So whiskey yeah. is so versatile, it really is. Like you get you, I, I, you say that sometimes, and you, people go right, okay. But it is you can do anything with it. It's it is a really versatile whiskey. Yeah, I, I was just going to mention as you're sitting talking about having the the port. Is it the port finish? Port Murray that you've got. Yeah. And 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 I've got the the six years bourbon, four years port. Fill your own from the distillery. Mm. One of the questions we'd asked Graham in a previous uh, interview was. I don't tend to like single malts in port. Mm-hmm. Glen Murray in port works fantastically well. And I asked him why that was, and, and he hypothesized is that they use the port, uh, the port cask, while still wet. They're not sitting around, they're not hanging around. They come in, they get filled. And his take was if you let them begin to dry out, you'll have what I've always experienced is the whiskey sitting on one the, on the palate, the whiskey sitting on one level and the port sitting on another. Mm. And you can always taste the malt and you can always taste the port, but, but it <laughs> never ever tastes like a combination of malt in port. And so is that your experience? 
Partly, I would say a lot of the experience is down to Glen Murray's actually quite an oily whiskey as well. There's a lot of oil in Glen Murray, and I think that's part of the reason it molds so well to the port cast too, because the, the oils actually can get in there and interact with the port. We are very lucky with the, the group we're in that we have um, Porta Cruz and some really good port casts we can get on demand. So, yes, we are lucky. You, you want to use any cask wet, it's as simple as that. You don't want your cask sitting drying out. But mm. th that could be part of it. But I think also the oils and just the basic character just moulds very, very well with Glen Murray and to the port and to anything yeah. kind of sweet, yeah. dried fruit. Yeah, well, and, and where we started the conversation was the, the curious you know, release from Glen Murray, yeah. uh, which is your label, not mine, um, <laughs> about the, the Madeira. And is that that's the Madeira finish? Mad is it finished double maturation, full maturation? Full maturation, maturation. Yeah. Oh, maturation. 2006, it went in in May. 2006. Okay, so what struck you with that selection? What struck me with that selection was the balance. Basically, by the time some, something had been in Madeira cast for that long, I'd expected it to be really cloying and sweet and over sure. the top. But it is not at all. Glenn Murray's still sitting there shining through for all its glory. There's lovely toffee, chocolate notes. You've got pe poached pears going on in it. You then get the, the lovely character of Glenn Murray itself coming through. It's it's a beautiful balance of the two flavours. It's not over-dominant. It's not... I thought it might be like some of the heavy PX whiskies. You know, you can get really mm. heavy and... It's like drinking PX. But uh, no, it's just... Mm. It's a beautiful balance between the two. The two are just at the right level. Wonderful. Do you do you have particular grape? Like, is there a particular port that you use for for a port or Madeira that you would use for Glen Murray? Well, uh, Madeira, we I, I don't know the history of these Madeira casts because they, went, okay. they were laid down in two thousand and six. We do have a Madeira as part of the the group, and mm -hmm. as I say, for for the port, we do have our own port houses that we use. Yeah. Uh, well. Uh, thanks a million, Kirsty. This has yeah, been an this absolute. Is, this blast. has been uh, brilliant. no problem. No problem. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Hopefully, see you, Glen Murray, soon for a visit. Well, and that's the big one. Absolutely. Yeah, we will. We will be there as soon as Europe lets us back into the continent. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks once again to the good Dr. Kirsty McCallum. Uh, you know, Kirsty, thank you so much for your time, the conversation. I'll tell you, Jason, that was just listening back to it, it, it really was the lovely conversation I remembered it being. And it's not as easy to have these chats over Zoom as yeah. it is to have them in person. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you and I have prided ourselves on with One Nation Under Whiskey is it, it was kind of reflective of our travels. Mm. If we go to Kentucky, here come some Kentucky interviews. If we go to Scotland, here come some Scottish interviews. If we go to the Pacific Northwest, here come some PMW interviews. Yeah, sure. To be sitting in our own offices in Virginia and Connecticut, not getting out, not exploring the world, not sitting in an office or a warehouse or a visitor centre, and chatting with somebody face-to-face -face over a dram, there's a lot to miss about that. Mm. And I most definitely am missing that. <laughs> but, but to be able to still have any interviews over Zoom with us having a little dram, Kirsty was sitting dramming uh, while we were chatting away. You know, we, we parted, as we've parted a lot of our Zoom interviews with, 
until we see each other in person and can lift a glass together. Yeah. Yep. You know, that's kind of the toast that we've left all of these interviews with. It's it's hard to be patient like that. It's hard to watch, you know, the world burn. And, mm. uh, and so, yeah, the fact we can still pull it off over Zoom is a good thing. And it's a, it's a bit of a substitute for lifting a dram in person. It's as close as we can get. I can't wait until we get back to that place. I have a feeling even when they say we can, I'm not going to be ready to. But uh, anyway, anyway, anyway. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I am 100% grounded the rest of 2020. I might be grounded the first half of 2021. We'll see. That's the only part that's in question for me now. 2020 is no longer a question. And part of it's actually the reality of, of life around me, which is my kids are going to go back to school two days a week. You know, yeah. the reason I could travel for five days at a time is because my wife had her career. The boys would leave on the school bus. They would come home on the school bus. Mm. There was five days when you kind of knew where they would be, when they'd be there, when they'd be home. And if they go to school two days out of the week, I simply cannot travel anywhere. That part is just over. Wow. With all of that said, mm -hmm. I remember from our last One Nation Under Whiskey that we put a pin in some whistle pig chat. I think we should unpin that. Well, we have to call our, our paper boy. Only the paper boy can unpin. Say that three times real fast. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, extra. Only our paper boy can unpin, only our paper boy can unpin, only our paper boy can unpin. That was a lot easier than I expected it to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Peter Piper. It's all those elocution it. lessons. Elocu oh, geez, that's, that is not how I want to die, by elocution. <laughs> Are we saying the right thing? Are we saying the same thing? Uh, yeah, we it just, <laughs> you end up saying, ow, that hurts. Ow, that hurts. <laughs> ow, that hurts. <laughs> And actually, you don't even die of electrocution. <laughs> you die of just electrocution. <laughs> oh, my God. That's good. Oh, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. Oh, I needed that. Oh. You know, Jason, you and I, you and I, sir, we wanted to do a bit of a deeper dive into the, the Whistle Pig release that is imminent. It is. If everything goes according to plan, mm -hmm. by the time this episode drops, it will have been bottled at our bottling hall in Kentucky. That is 100% right. However, I did temper it by saying, if everything goes according to plan, and almost never do things go according to plan. You speak truths, my friend. You speak truths. I do. I speak truths to power. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the two different ryes that we yeah. have. Yeah. I remember selecting them. I love it when you describe all this for our listeners, because <laughs> it gives me a chance 
to think about how I'm going to describe it to people. Gosh, I'm so glad you said that because I felt as of late, you've been a bit of a mic hog. And and I kind of rolled over, exposed my belly, and I was going to, you know, pass it off to you, but you gave it right back to me, and I appreciate that. Is that M-I-C-O-G? A mic hog? (laughs) My God. I'm, I'm assuming whenever you say a word that I don't understand, I assume it's a science fiction reference. So who were the Mycogs? Uh, they lived on the planet Meldor. You don't remember? That makes this? sense. Okay. Eight cats. Right. <laughs> Last November, you and I went to the Whistlepig farm. Uh, we had some preliminary conversations before we went to Whistlepig farm, and they actually reached out to us saying, guys, we really like what you do and what you've been doing. We've been thinking about partnering with an independent bottler, and we only hear good things about you. And and that was that yeah. was a very very nice thing to hear. It was a wonderful call to receive. Is actually are you telling me you like compliments? I do like a good compliment now and again, Jason. <clears throat> At your age, it's more <laughs> dot dot dot. <laughs> uh, so so. They took us to the Whistlepig Farm, and we got to meet with Pete Lynch, who's been on the podcast before. We had right we episode did with interview him. him while we were there. Indeed, that was the end of season three, or right before the mailbag episode. Right, so season three, exactly. episode twenty-five, released on January 29th. You, sir, are exactly correct. I like to, be and it was another. Another solid interview. Tons of fun. Yeah, yeah, tons of fun. In meeting with with Pete, and actually we talked about the, the process a bit in that interview, but before we interviewed Pete later that evening, we were in a tasting room with him and tasted some lovely rye, all from Indiana, and all in different finishing casks. And we fell in love with three of them. We fell in love with one that was finished in uh, Tokai wine, which is Hungarian dessert wine. And as you and I were talking about our love of Springbank Distillery earlier, think of the long row that was in Tokai mm-hmm. from way back in the day. You know, anytime I see any whiskey in Tokai, I think of that long row. Because you liked that long row quite a lot, didn't I you? I really did, yeah. I remember yeah. drinking it at Oren Moore. And, that was uh, a divisive a bit of a hurt one. On that bottle, that was a bit of a divisive one. Not really? everybody, not everybody felt the way that you did. Hmm. Uh, anyway, anyway, so so we tasted that. We tasted some finished in these interesting, like Brazilian wood casks. Right, I forget the name of those ones. Uh, some some red wine. We casks did taste and, a lot of samples. We tasted a lot, and. And we ended up loving three. So the Tokai one, which I just mentioned, and then a rum-finished one and a vermouth-finished one. And we said, we'd really like to do two. And then just for shits and giggles, I just married my ex-rum and ex-vermouth samples together, swished it around a little bit, noticed it for a while, and then finally tasted it. And I said, then I told you guys what I did. And I said, you guys have to taste these two together because it's absolutely phenomenal. And I, I, I don't know if, if your recollection matches mine, but I remember you being a little bashful when you brought that to the attention of the group. 
Because like, I didn't know if I was allowed to. <laughs> like I felt, I did. I totally felt as if I was breaking the rules. That's why I didn't say anything. I, you know, I waited for you guys to get deep in conversation and then I would mix it. And <laughs> I like doing that. I got into really quick, quick tangent. There was a podcast that I was on where we were. Fwa, fwa, fwa. Fwa, fwa, fwa. And we were doing whiskeys. You know, I bring my whiskeys, you bring your whiskeys, and it will, who wins, right? And so. I'll put yours in my mouth if you put mine in yours. I, yes, just like that, just like that. <laughs> and uh, so, so they were both Isla, and his first one was a kill home, and my first one was a kill home. And by the way, this was the uh, Beastmasters podcast. And then his second one was a Port Ellen. And mine was the Lagavulin 2015 Fijil bottling. Beautiful. And at the end of that, I actually mixed what was left of my Port Ellen with what was left of the Lagavulin. <laughs> and you could you could see them like go into slow motion, like, no. But I just, I want to do that. I want to see what happens. And after their reaction... To what I did with Port Ellen and Lagavulin, I was a bit bashful. I was a bit shy to tell you guys that I had mixed the rum and vermouth once. So with that said, oh. just a very, very quick follow-up <laughs> on that is it made me think of you talking about the 50-50 Lafroig Lagavulin. Right? Mm, we talked about mm-hmm. that in a recent episode as well. And the feedback from our Isla blended single cast yeah yeah has been phenomenal and it's been wonderful to see people get down off the high horse of isla single malt and enjoy and this is this is why i'm saying this this is you know influenced by what you're just saying here uh even the the very good elijah had reached out to say something similar you're just getting into the fun, the taste, the enjoyment, mm-hmm. and leaving off the, you know, Worship. as we did on a, on a recent Extra Extra, leaving off the, the idolizing of yeah. the single cask. 100%. Uh, and, and just saying, this is kind of fun. And so I just wanted to throw that out there because we're in the news segment, because it's a follow-on from a recent release, um, and because we actually... You know, maybe when this goes live, it might not be on the website any longer. But mm-hmm. we have had more of the Isla blended malt for sale as well, mm-hmm. and uh, and I love it. As people are receiving them, opening them, tasting them, they're placing repeat orders for them, which yep. to me, yep. you know, is is the guiding moment that says people are enjoying that. Yep, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. So anyway, two so. back to back tangents, back yep. to sitting tasting at Whistle Pig Farm. Right, so we so we selected the Tokai finished rise, and then we married the rum and vermouth ones together, and and asked of those two casks if they wouldn't mind giving up those two. So each release is actually a marriage of two casks, which we tasted beforehand. We we tasted those ratios together. So the first one is two Tokai finish rye casks together, and then the other one is rum and vermouth finished rye. On the label, it says aged not less than 12 years. I'll tell you that it's aged a bit more than 12 years. And Mm -hmm. what I love about this collaboration with Whistlepig 
you know, we said, what would make us different from the store picks that everybody does, right? I mean, I've seen Tokai finished whistle pigs. I've seen Madeira finish whistle pigs and, and so on. I said, what would make ours different? He said, well, you guys bottle everything at cast strength. Those finished ones that are, you know, the 12-year-old finished ones, those are all bottled at 43%. So you guys are getting it full fat. Oh, okay, <laughs> right, yep, that's, that is different. And it made me think of our, our relationship with Wild Turkey, where they allow yeah. us to, to select casks, just like they allow shops to select casks. The difference with ours to the others is, other than it being in our own livery and our bottling and label and so on, is the fact that you get Wild Turkey full fat through us, full cask strength. And, and that's something that we, we strived for. And, and it was very good of them to remind, remind us that that was the, the, the bit of stipulation that if we do go with working with it, it has to be cast strength. It has to be the natural stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting because they've got such a good following and they're so well known for their boss hog releases mm. that, and we talked about it on the podcast with Pete uh, back at, as we posted it back at the end of January. But it's interesting to me, and, and I'm using the word interesting because I, I don't want to use the word nerve-wracking, to go up against, you know, that style. You know, these aren't quite as old as the Boss Hog releases, but I think there's a, a level of, of <laughs> I don't even know if it's a word, esotericism. Ooh, I like <laughs> that. There, esotericism, is, Yes. Is there? I don't know if that's actually an accurate word. But anyway, I think you all understand. It's what, what ghosts I'm have. Like at. when you get struck by a ghost, you're covered with esotericism. <laughs> ah, yeah, I'm a little nervous about that word going out there. Anywho, you know, when you did bring to us this vermouth, first of all, seeing you know, a rye finished in vermouth was a new one for me. But seeing that vermouth combined with the rum... Like, that's a little bit out, out of left field. <laughs> yeah. And I do remember enjoying it, and I do remember signing off on it, but even as I hear the words coming out of my mouth and I hear them coming out of your mouth, it seems a bit on the esoteric side. It is, but think about what vermouth does. Vermouth, even the sweet ones, have a bit of a drying effect. So you have mm. the dryness from the vermouth, You've got the spiciness from the rye, and then you've got the sweetness from the rum. It, it's it's just it becomes this perfectly balanced rye that that is running the gamut with flavors. I I, I really would like to see more finishing happening within the world uh, of of American spirits and bourbon and rye because you can start breaking out of that new charred oak box and start delivering new flavors to people. I I, I just Hmm. I'm excited about it. Yeah. We will be making these available via lottery. Mm -hmm. We have, approximately, we haven't done the bottling yet, We are, but the label says it. Uh, we have in the ballpark of 450 bottles per release. Mm -hmm. And the lottery will allow individuals to purchase one each of the releases. Correct. Or a maximum of one only from either release. It's entirely up to the individual. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go with the vermouth rum or do you want to go with the Takai 
or would you like to purchase one of each? That's how we're going to run the lottery. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And that gives 450 people, maybe a bit more if someone just decides to go with one or the other, the opportunity to buy. That's that's more than anybody's had a chance with with some of our wild turkeys on occasion. Exactly. So, so yeah. Excited to get it in bottle, excited to get it on the road to our, <laughs> our California warehouses, and, mm-hmm. and excited to get the lottery running, and excited to get it out to people who are big fans of Whistlepig. Same, yeah. One last bit of information that I want to tell everybody is that on the same exact day we're having our Whistlepigs bottled, we actually have a collaboration with Balcones, which we're incredibly excited about. And that's Indeed. a marriage of two casks as well. That's Texan single malt whiskey. <laughs> that's being bottled the same day. I, I think there's a bit of a story to that, and I don't want to make this podcast last too long. So let's do a deep dive on that for the next One Nation Under Whiskey. Yeah, it won't be released at the same time no, as no, the, the Whistle no. Pig. It also will not be sold via lottery because our policy is American single malt just gets sold the way we sell our Scottish single malts or our world mm-hmm. single malts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't do lotteries on the single malts. So uh, that'll be a, be ready at noon on a Wednesday or a Thursday at some point in the future, and we will make those available. The other thing that we have to do, Jason, and, and I would say we're officially done with the news section, but the other thing that we have to do for next episode is read some listener questions. We have a lot of questions that have come in that we haven't had a chance to to answer. And so I want us to get back to doing that. So next episode, dear listeners of One Nation Under Whiskey, not Extra Extra, next episode, we will have a couple of emails in which we'll answer. You and I, Jason, need to get out of here. And I, and I know I said that I wouldn't be reading any emails, but I, I have to say something. And this, this touched me, okay? Mm-hmm. As you know, occasionally I hop out on the road because occasionally I have to visit a shop if they'll see me wearing masks and the whole deal. Uh, but this time around, I had to meet with a consumer wearing my Impex hat uh, and deliver a bottle to someone. And that someone is uh, a good gentleman by the name of Nicholas Nastasi. And I know that name. Yep, you recognize that name from having shipped bottles to him. I recognize that name from him coming to so many of the tastings that I've done in, in, in various shops, regardless of what I was pouring. He, he's been pretty loyal to my tastings. And that, that always, like, like we'd said earlier, I like compliments. That felt like a nice compliment. And because <laughs> I like compliments so much, you know, where I met with him, I'm, I'm, I hand off a bottle. And he said, you know, I've got to tell you, I've been listening to every episode of your podcast since the beginning. I said, well, of course. I said, thank you. That that really makes me feel good. And I'm going to tell Jason that. And I said, but, you know, in these times when we're all driving a little less, Mm -hmm. (laughs) aren't they a bit long for you? And he said, no one gets tired of something that's too long. They get tired of something if it's boring. People don't complain about reading a 500 or 1,000-page book. They just read the book. You guys are entertaining. I have fun listening to you. So the time is perfectly fine. That made me feel good because 
privately, you and I always say, geez, is this one too long? Is this one too long? As we're talking, geez, are we saying too much? So anyway. I, uh, I just like any opportunity in the day to ask you, is this too long? I, it's, it's, I just enjoy it. It's not a thing you get to say very often. And so you, know, you, you, find, you find reasons to ask that question. And, and now that's a very smart point. I like the idea of, you know, it doesn't matter how long a book is, you read it or you don't. You know, you enjoy it or you don't. So that's that's very kind. I like. Mm. It turns out, Josh, I've I've learned about myself this day. I too enjoy compliments. I never knew that about myself. I figured that you did because every time you say, "Is this too long?" and I would say no, I figured you it would turn into a yes at some point. <laughs> but you know, anyway, only if you keep rubbing it. <laughs> On that note. Dear listeners, before I say goodbye to dear listeners, I want to say goodbye and thank you again to the good Dr. Kirsty McCallum. Thank you of once course. again. Uh, it's, it was yeah, a blast. Wonderful. Thank you. Yep. Can't wait to see you again in person on your side of the pond or on our side of the pond. And then to our dear listeners and to you, Jason, I bid you adieu and I say thank you. <laughs> and thank you and adieu to you and our dear listeners. Chin chin. We told you in January that interviewing you was going to be a blast and it has absolutely been a blast. (laughs) Thank you ever so much. Oh, thank you for listening I, to I've me. I've loved it. <laughs> thank you. But I, I, I want to get out of here on this, and this might end up becoming the Easter egg um, because we've done the getting out on the, the big exciting thing. You're a master blender. Your palate is hugely important. And like me, you are a big fan of iron brew, deep fried pizza, <laughs> Pickled eggs and pickled onions. Is there any part of you thinks you need to give any of these up for your professional life? Or if it's worked for 20 years, you're not going to change anything now? No, no chance. No chance. Uh, Especially especially pickled onions. No way. See, and I thought where, where Jason was going with that question was... Does that also make me a master blender because I like those things? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you know, we do select all these casts for single cast nation, and when we're over in Scotland, more than happy to pound uh, a deep fried pizza, some pickled eggs, <laughs> a few iron brew. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I wanted you to validate me not getting rid of them, and you did exactly that. <laughs> Pickled eggs have a, a little bit more dubious on, but everything else. All oh, right. Oh, controversial. <laughs> <laughs>